I talked before about the hope of heaven and the importance that that is um, in, ha in being resilient. Uh, because we know the best is yet to come, it really is. Good to be with you. This morning we are concluding our series on the resilient life, and we've had a lot of um, attempts to define what it means to be resilient. Um, for me, I would just say what I desire for myself, what I desire for you, is that when life crushes you, it does not break you. That's what I want for me. I know life is gonna crush me. What I want is that I'm not broken. And the only way that we're not broken when life crushes us is that our faith is not broken. So how do we maintain resilient faith in the midst of hardships and trials? Well, I'm gonna suggest that the way that we do that is to consider the end of grief. Uh, so this morning, it's a really clever title because it's a double entendre, uh, meaning one word, two different meanings, and we're gonna consider the two meanings of the word end together as it relates to grief. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. And of course, the first meaning of the word end is purpose. The ends, the results, uh, the purpose justifies the means, and so what is the purpose or what is um, the point of grief and suffering? And Paul sure understood suffering. If you're in 1 Corinthians, I encourage you to turn over to 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4 is also really good, but... <clears throat> Verse seven, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. Uh, Paul was pretty impressive, wasn't he? I mean, when you read, when you read what he was like and what he did, um, when you read the Acts uh, of the Holy Spirit there in the book of Acts uh, through, his, uh, through the disciples, we're pretty impressed with them, and Paul says, but we're pretty frail, aren't we? This is my jar of clay. It's not very impressive. I wish it were. It's not. Um, and Paul's point is that God has made us unimpressive so that when he works through us, and people might say, well, wow, that's really great that he received glory rather than us. And so that's kind of a starting point. You're like, well, why do I have this broken, sad body? Um, it is because the point of it is to reveal Christ and his power, to reveal the work of Yahweh. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. 
So I would suggest that one of the primary purposes of grief is that Christ may be revealed in our bodies. And when we read that, we're like, oh, thank you, Paul, for those very churchy words. We can just say them. We can kind of nod. Mm, yes. And then move on without ever wondering, what is he saying? What does Paul mean when he says that Christ may be revealed in your body? Uh, I would suggest it's pretty simple. It means that we will look like Jesus when we respond to trials. If you and I will know Jesus well, well enough that when we encounter trial, we can respond to it the way he does, and someone's watching us, what do they see? They see a jar of clay doing something remarkable. And the hope is that they say, well, that's gotta be Jesus. In fact, um, I heard the story recently of a woman who is suffering, and she has been for a long time, and in the midst of her suffering, she has been responding, not perfectly, no one responds perfectly all the time, but she has been responding like Christ, and her parents who were unbelievers have become believers because they've seen the way she responds. The life of Christ was revealed in her body. And I just have a question for you. If we can understand that God is going to do something remarkable through our trials, does it change our perspective on trials? Your head should be like, hmm. <laughs> See, but we, the truth is, I'm not saying that you disagreed with me, but the truth is that we kind of don't buy that all the time. I don't want hardship. I don't want trials, I want ease. That's what I've been promised. Um, but the reality is we've not been promised that. Jesus, of course, did promise us hardships and the, the, the end of that grief, the purpose of that grief is that Jesus is revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. When we are dying but revealing Christ, it means that life is being worked out in front of the people who are watching us. Uh, skip down to verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Um, not gonna belabor it, light and momentary troubles, were stonings, beatings, whippings, um, shipwrecks, jail. Those light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The suffering that we go through and respond to in a Christ-like way is gaining for us a treasure in heaven, in the, in the new earth, that outweighs not a little, but far everything that we experience here. And if you're like me, sometimes you're going through and you're like, this is way too heavy. This is crushing me. This is too expensive. We need to be reminded 
that part of the purpose of grief, the end of grief, is that it is laying up treasure, glory in heaven. Uh, you may object, well, why would God delight in pain? That's a, a critique that our culture has, and it's a reasonable critique, but the answer is he doesn't. Yahweh does not delight in pain, but he does delight in teaching us truth and shaping and disciplining us to be like his son. Some suffering is because of persecution, and when we respond to that rightly, we are gaining everlasting reward. Some suffering is because of the results of our sin and folly. And, and when we respond to that rightly, I'm persuaded we actually do reveal Christ because you can say, all of us can say, well, I'm gonna be a fool sometime. I'd like to see how a fool does that. How, how does a fool act like Christ in the aftermath of the folly? Um, and so that's gaining us everlasting glory. Some of it is just general brokenness. And when we respond to that in a Christ-like way, we are revealing him in our bodies and we're gaining everlasting glory. And some of it is fatherly training. Sometimes a trial that we feel, uh, that feels so unjust might simply be the father training, nurturing, shaping. Because training for something uh, is painful. Kip was sharing uh, at speaking team, uh, he, you may not know, he used to be a world-renowned soccer player, and he was sharing how he loved sprints, the suicides. Uh, actually, no, you said you hated them, right? But what he understood was that those drills... Those drills were making him a better soccer player and made the game that he loved better. And the coach knew best. The coach did not delight in pain, he delighted in teaching truth and shaping those athletes. Letting suffering do its work in us conforms us to the likeness of Christ and helps us understand mysterious, eternal realities. Suffering is a prerequisite to victory. So, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Myopia, or nearsightedness, is increasing rapidly, um, it's reaching astonishing rates among children. Uh, shocking, we have no idea. We have no idea how it could be happening. I don't think it has anything to do with screens. Um, so we live a world now uh, that is this far away from our face, and guess what is happening to us physically? We are literally changing the way our eyes work so that they don't work for well off there, they work well for here. That's happening. And I would suggest that if that's happening physically, what is happening to us spiritually as we spend all our time here? Paul says that we need to stop looking at what is seen and look at what is unseen. What is the scene? The visible world and its trappings. They are a vapor. Uh, I wish it were really cold today because you could go outside and you could breathe and you'd see the vapor and you'd say, ah, that was like Sam's sermon. 
My sermon will just feel like a vapor. Gone, done too soon. The visible world and its trappings are a vapor. What are those trappings? Well, they're jobs, they're money, they're careers, they're trips. They are mountains and oceans and streams. But in the context of the, of the passage, they are our troubles and afflictions, our light momentary troubles of whatever we go through are a vapor. And so we need to look on the unseen. Well, what is the unseen? There are eternal current truths about the world right now. There are unseen things that are true and everlasting around us right now. The easiest and most obvious that we always go to are the angels and demons. There is, a, there is literally a spiritual world of persons who don't seem a whole lot unlike you and I, and they are probably here. I don't know why they wouldn't come. Watching over us, guarding us, or assaulting us, there is a spiritual battle raging that we see in scripture that we don't see with our eyes and so we reject. Or we just forget about it. Because we're focused on what's close rather than what is far off. There is a whole spirit world. There is a real temple. Remember from Hebrews? There is a real temple that was not made by human hands which is where Jesus took his blood to pay the cost for you and me. There are spiritual current truths, eternal truths about reality, and there are eternal future truths about reality. The word we use for that is eschatology. It's what we mean when we talk about the end things, and there is a personal eschatology. In other words, I'm going to have an end. I don't feel like it. I still feel very young, late 20s, early 30s. <laughs> but I'm going to, and there are realities about my end, and there are truths about the end in general. Paul says those are the things that we need to be focusing on. We are called to fix our eyes on the invisible. You don't need to turn there. Um, I will just to make sure that I don't uh, misremember it when I say it to you. But Hebrews 12, this is exactly what Jesus did in Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what Jesus did. Paul is calling you and me to do what Jesus did. God doesn't call us to do something that he hasn't already done. This is what Jesus did. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Well, what was the joy? It obviously was not the cross. The joy set before him was the throne that he was gonna sit down on. The joy that was set before him was, in the night that he was betrayed, he said, Father, I pray that, that my friends here can see me in my glory. Jesus wanted them to see him as he is. And he knew that was coming. 
Jesus had his mind set on the eternal, invisible things that were future, eschatological, and that gave him strength to face the cross, and not only the cross, but the garden. And so he endured the cross. He scorned its shame. Uh, we think of shame and we think of embarrassment. Oh, how embarrassing. Uh, shame in the New Testament and Old Testament does not mean embarrassed, it means proven wrong. If you were shamed, it was you had been proven wrong about something that you believed or said. The cross looked like Jesus was a failure. Jesus endured looking like he had been shamed. I don't want to do that, do you? I want to make my point, defend it, make sure everyone knows I'm right. But Jesus, because he understood the end or the purpose, was able to endure that and go through it. So what are the unseen future things? And that leads us to the resolution of grief. What are those unseen future things? There are many and in many places and we can't possibly look at them all, but for this morning I want us to consider the resolution of grief in Revelation starting at chapter 19. So turn there with me. this week, so you're coming into the Christmas season, and for some of you, that's gonna be a fantastic time. It's gonna be so fun, you're gonna love it. Uh, you're one of those crazy people who likes snow. Um, but you, it's just gonna be uh, roses and sunshine for you. Some of you, this is one of the hardest times of the year because of loss or grief that you've had, because of family discord, uh, this is a great time, great time of year to consider the end. Because you may be going through some really challenging things and, and how are you going to fix that? That isn't just like, oh, I'm gonna like get really resolved today. No, you, you're going to think about the future things. You're gonna think about unseen things and that is going to give you strength and energy um, and the right focus to move through this season with joy. That's what's gonna happen. Um, so Revelation 19, we see the resolution of evil in many ways, and we're not gonna read uh, very much, I'm just gonna point it out to you as we go. Um, but here we are at the uh, tribulation, the end of the tribulation period, and Jesus comes against them and defeats the beast and his armies, and evil uh, is destroyed. After that, uh, we have the thousand years of the millennia. Uh, Satan is released again and destroyed again, this time permanently being thrown into the lake of fire. And so evil is uh, resolved, it is destroyed, and then there is a throne called the great white throne. You do not want to have to show up at the great white throne. Uh, the great white throne is where all 
uh, evil, all unbelievers of all time are raised to receive judgment for the works done in their bodies. If, if you have trouble letting go of hurt that has been done to you or been done to others and it doesn't seem like God is judging it, here is your resolution. The heavens and the earth are destroyed or wiped away and all unbelievers of all time come before God to be judged floating in space. And he gives perfect judgment. We're supposed to hand over judgment to God uh, because he does it perfectly. And then in chapter one, we see the new city coming down. Chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. At the end, Yahweh will be present with his people. If you read the book of Exodus, uh, we have the, uh, the tabernacle being built as a place for God to uh, dwell with his people, uh, but it's not, that's not what he wanted. He wanted to really dwell with us, and here we finally see that resolved. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every sorrow is relieved. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The curse is ended. Death and brokenness are over. There's a lot more to be read there and I would encourage you to read it, but turn on to chapter 22, verse three, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, or the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And so we reign forever and ever. And a cynic may say, well, what are they reigning? They're all believers. It's, it's like, read the whole Bible, please. Genesis 1.26 says that God creates everything and then he says to man, rule this in my stead. And we said, no. We just want to consume it but there will come a time when he will empower us and transform us and we will rule the earth, we will reign over his creation in the way that we were intended. And none of this is new. John is writing old material. You can get my notes online, but Isaiah 65. I read it in speaking team and everybody's like, well, that's Revelation. I was like, ha ha. I had been gotten because I saw, I saw someone on Facebook put up Isaiah 65 and I read it and I was like, well, they got the reference wrong. No one's ever gotten the reference wrong. 
Elizabeth Elliot said this, the experiences of my life are not such that I can infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. To have had one husband murdered and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what, would you call, is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. My belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct, it is by faith. I would suggest to you that eschatology is the proof of God's goodness. How do we do it? Um, if you're friends with me on Facebook, I actually took pictures of these last two pages and I put them on the post that I just put up before service so you can find them there because there's a lot and you probably can't write this fast. Uh, but let me suggest to you um, the primary way that we do this is to build habits. Well, you're like, well, that doesn't sound very much like a personal relationship with Jesus. I would suggest that the way we come to know Christ is by developing the habits that lead us to abide in him. Um, I asked the speaking team, and Kip said one way that he does it is to go to a lot of funerals. When you go to a lot of funerals, you keep the end in mind. Better is a house of mourning than a house of feasting, because you consider the end of man there. We need to create a habit of reading the whole Bible. I'm so excited. I mean, like, our church is gonna do this together next year. The church, starting in January, is gonna be given a reading guide that goes chronologically through the entire Bible. This year we did it with Matthew. We read Matthew together four times, and people are like, that's really good. Well, right, that's the Bible. This year, we're gonna read the entire Bible chronologically, and that is super exciting. So you can get in on that, create a habit of reading it, and then you'll find out that you are knowing Jesus. The more you eat well, the more you'll eat well. I love Doritos. Didn't like Brussels sprouts until one day my wife made Brussels sprouts. Uh, I'm Baptist, but she made them with sherry. <laughs> and they were really good. And I wanted more. I haven't had Doritos since. <laughs> That's not true. You need, you need group encouragement. You need positive peer pressure. Why? Because positive peer pressure builds habits. Engage sanctification, wrestle with sin, put off. I, I'm all the time preaching against Netflix, uh, and sometimes I take a little um, heat for that. Okay, stop watching Netflix and start reading scripture, read something that's beautiful, uh, go for a walk with your family, uh, listen to Salas, P-S-A-L-L-O-S, it's an amazing group. Listen to their Hebrews one throughout Christmas time. Listen to the group Ghost Ship. Uh, amazing, amazing work there. Think about truth about God. Learn doctrine. Think about beautiful things, true, noble, and right things. Give thanks together. Pray. Meditate on the scripture that you're reading. You know, in America, we think we have to do everything really well. G.K. Chesterton, who was not American, said, if something is worth doing, it is worth doing 
poorly. <gasps> See, you're so American. If something is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Start a habit knowing that it's gonna go poorly. And God will take delight in that. And as you do it, you will keep, you'll keep doing it, and eventually you'll do it in such a way that people are like, well, that's really amazing, you're really great, and you'll say, I'm just a jar of clay. And when I started, it was terrible. So start things like reading scripture with your kids. Tonight, before bed, if you have children, regardless of their age, in fact, if you have persons in your house, gather and read scripture together. It's okay if you start in Genesis. If you get a jump on it, is that okay? Pastor Kip has approved. You can actually start reading the Bible before January. Give thanks at bedtime. Make everyone, dads, make everyone in the house give thanks for one thing. And it can be a stupid thing, it's okay. Pray together before leaving the house. Is that hard? Do we have time for that? We'll talk more about Tolkien later. Uh, but you can today, today, tonight, you can start Advent. This is a kid's thing. It's available over in the kid's wing. This is for your family it has, if you have little kids. If you don't have little kids, you can buy stuff over there that's for older people if you don't have children in the house. Uh, but if you don't want to buy something, you can still take this and do the readings. You don't have to color in Mary and Joseph. <laughs> if your kids are 16, don't make them color in. Mary and Joseph, but start it and do it poorly for a while. That delights God. Father, I pray that you would help us to think about the invisible things. The visible things are so alluring, they're so constant, they are so oppressive, the stimulus is so great, it's hard for us to break it. I ask that you would empower us by your spirit to break it and to look at the invisible things that you'd bring people into our lives who will ask us, hey, are you looking at invisible things? And that you would help us to build habits that are life-giving, that protect us from evil and nurture us in good. And that our lives will be transformed and the life of Christ will be revealed in our bodies. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Blessings on you. Have a great Advent season.